This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Now we finished Philippians last week. And so we're going to cleanse our palates before we jump into another one of either Paul's letters or Peter's letters or either the other or any of the other letters of the apostles. We're going to jump back into the book of Acts as we've been doing periodically and engage in a continued study of some of our most ancient roots. Amen. So book of Acts chapter two. We've already had a couple. I think we've had two or three of these classes already in Acts or, or studies in Acts. We've had three. OK, this will be our fourth one. And we left off last time in chapter 2, where it talks about that when the day of Pentecost was fully come and then the Holy Spirit being first given to the church and to the people of God. This was the very first occurrence of the Holy Spirit baptism that Jesus spoke of in the Gospels, which was the fulfillment of the prophecy over in the Minor Prophets in the book of Joel in the last days saith the Lord, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And in fact, we'll just read that because we're picking up in that same paragraph. Let's pick it up in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. In other words, listen up. That's what he was telling them. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let's stop right there. So he was quoting this from the book of Joel. Those who are inclined to try to push this off as some future thing that's going to come in, uh, let's just say, in the days where the prophecies of the Revelation are actually coming to pass. Those that would be inclined to push this off till some future time aren't paying attention to the text here. Peter just said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So this is past prophecy fulfilled now 2,000 years ago. This was the fulfillment of that. It was, it was happening here on this, on this first Pentecost after Christ's resurrection and his ascension, his return, to our, uh, his return to the Father. So let's pick it up where we just left off. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear, the wor- hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by, by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, 
whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Period. Let's stop right there. What are we doing in this study tonight? We're not just reading through Peter's sermon, okay? We are, but we're not just reading through his sermon. We're going to pick it apart and actually pay attention to some of the language that he uses here, because some of this is very important to understand. I'm not saying it's going to have some sort of an epiphany or some dramatic impact on the way that you live your life for God, but it might shed some light on something, and then who knows, cause and effect, it might actually have a dramatic effect. What was happening here was the very first gospel message. Okay, well, we read, didn't we read over in the gospels, though, where Jesus went about in all the cities and all the villages, preaching the gospel of the kingdom? Yes, but the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of the kingdom. And we know what the word gospel means, simply means good news. And so the gospel of the kingdom was basically the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus preached when he walked the earth among us. That's what he sent his disciples out to preach when to preach when he still walked the earth among us. That was the good news of the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, which Peter was preaching to this massed multitude that had witnessed this profound miracle, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and fulfillment of prophecy. So let's read it again. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, this is a lot of people that were gathered there. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. So he's already kicking Jesus's credentials right here and presenting them. He was here healing and, and well, not saving, but healing, resurrecting, preaching, teaching, restoring sight to the blind, restoring speech to the mute, casting out demons and devils and all of that um, by miracles and signs and wonders, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? It was all planned. The betrayal of Christ, that mockery of a trial, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, it was not the tragedy that the disciples had first understood it to be. It was all according to and appointed by God's divine plan. So here it is, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So, well, we believe in human free will, not divine foreknowledge. Okay, well, we believe in human free will too, amen? The Bible's full of it, right? But we also believe in the divine foreknowledge of God. These are not mutually exclusive things. It's something that's very, very important for us as Christians to understand. In our finite minds, it's either or. God knows everything from 20 billion eons ago. He knew what socks I was going to put on and he knew if I would be in Bible study tonight. Well, no, not really. But there are examples of divine foreknowledge that are throughout the word of God. Prophecy is divine foreknowledge. And this right here. And then this was prophesied also. So Peter was just sharing what had already been foretold. And you find it alluded to throughout scriptures, especially over in the Psalms and over in Isaiah. He says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now this could, this could open up a gigantic can of worms about you know predestinationism and all of that, but we're going to save that for Romans. <laughs> okay, 
Because that'll like swallow the whole teaching for weeks and we're just not going to do that. Or it could if we let it. But it's all there. It was all according to God's divine plan. Now, did it have to happen by the hand of Judas? No, but it did have to happen. Are we tracking this? This is very important. It did have to happen. And I think this uh, another classic example of this sort of thing was if we want to reach back way back, although we're, we're stepping off of the gospel for a moment, we're going to reach way back into the Old Testament uh, where uh, to the first king of Israel, right? Saul. Now, Samuel the prophet, before Saul was ever chosen to be king, Samuel the prophet, upon hearing the complaints of the people wanting a king, they had never had a king. God had always been their king, though he had raised up judges when they were needed to get certain things done and rule the land. They were basically a self-governed people under the law of Moses, under the kingship of God. When they complained to Samuel that they wanted to have a king too, someone that they could heap their adoration on and, and make glorious and all of that, very, very carnal thinking and a very carnal motive. They just wanted to be like the countries around about them. Sound familiar? Sometimes it feels like America wants to be the same way, but then we decide we want to be mavericks and individualists again. It's like we can't make up our minds, you know? But they complained to Samuel the prophet. Samuel took it to God. He was distraught. God said, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so he gave Samuel a message to tell them. Samuel stood up before the people and said, we're going to give you a king, all right. But you are going to rue the day that it happened because he's going to take the best of what you had or have. He's going to take your sons. He's going to put them in their armies. He's going to take your daughters and make them his maidservants. He's going to take your land and make it his land and all of these. He's going to do all these different things. But the people, as they were known and want to be, were stiff-necked, did not want to listen. And I'm not speaking from a judgmental position. That's what the word of God says concerning them. And so along came Saul. Now Saul started out right, but within three years, he nosedived started going down a path of rebellion and all of that. So, so why are we bringing that up? Because God had prophesied that they were going to have a king that was going to cause them to regret wanting a king. But it doesn't mean that Saul himself was destined to fail and live a wicked life in front of the people. What was destined and foretold to happen, I know we're kind of, we've already rabbit trailed on this point, but I really want to make sure we understand it. What was destined or what was foreknown and what was ordained was that Israel was going to regret wanting a king. Didn't say how they were going to regret it. That was not foretold. None of that was foretold. Saul could have made them regret wanting a king by any number of different ways, like taxing them half to death, which I think he did anyway. I think, it, Although I think it, it reached its worst state of taxation uh, with the son of Solomon that really made it intolerable, but it could have happened any number of different ways. It's the same way with this, okay? Jesus was foretold and foreordained to die for the sins of the world, to be delivered up, to be betrayed, and all of that. But it didn't necessarily have to be Judas. But Judas, being the type of person he very well chose to be, walking with the other 11 disciples, walking alongside of Jesus, bearing the bag, witnessing the miracles, and, and being a partaker of all of that, still decided to be a wicked person. I mean, my goodness, how could you see everything that he saw and still be the type of person that you were? Well, there's a lesson in that. Some people, it doesn't matter what happens in their life, and it doesn't matter what God does in their life. 
They still choose to just be awful people. And then they reap the rewards of that. Let's move on. Delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, he said to the, to the people of Israel, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This is, I don't want to call it the accusation, this is the conviction, their part in the crime, okay? Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. What does that mean? Jesus wouldn't even have died if it hadn't have been for our sins. Even with the beating and the physical torture and all of that, he was incapable of dying because he had no sins of his own. Thus, taking our sins upon him, he was subject and made subject to death. But again, because he had no sins of his own, even the grave could not hold him. It could not hold him. Because what was the very first penalty for sin? We became subject to death. Adam and Eve back there in the garden. Their one simple commandment, and they messed that up. Human beings, even when we were perfect, had, uh, had a, a notable capacity for messing things up. Okay, Jesus could not be held by death. And he goes on further in verse 25. He says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. This was David prophesying by the Holy Ghost having moved upon him. Okay, that's how the prophets prophesied in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit could move upon them and did move upon them. And then they prophesied according to the word and the will of God. What was he saying? He was speaking all of this as a prophecy of what would befall our Lord. And not just in his death and his burial, but also his resurrection. Let's go back into the text here in verse 27. Uh, actually, verse 26. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Now, what does it mean by that, corruption? Thou wilt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Who was God's Holy One? Jesus, the Son of God. What kind of corruption was he talking about? His body didn't rot. Just to be, not, not to be graphic, but just to be very plain about it. He was dead three days. The body begins decomposing practically immediately, doesn't it? You know, you don't see it happen quickly, but... The body begins decomposing uh, at whatever very minute level. And then within three days, what did they say when, when Lazarus was dead? When he was four days, he behold, he stinketh, you know. We don't want to roll that stone aside. It's going to be nasty. And we want to eat tonight, you know. <laughs> well, in three days, I mean, it's, I don't know if it would have been as bad as four, but I don't know what the Jews, if they had embalming, practices or not i don't know did the jews have embalming practices were they as were they as involved as the egyptians but either way i mean it's still it's still pretty gnarly no matter what you're doing you know preparing a body for 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 death but even with modern embalming practices let's just do it all right even with modern embalming practices you know one of the things that they'll do in preparation for burials they'll they'll sew the mouth shut okay because if they don't 
things are already breaking down within the guts and the digestive system, <laughs> pardon me, of, uh, of the departed there, okay? And if this isn't all closed up, it can come out. Not something you want to see happening at an open casket funeral, okay, right? It's kind of horrifying. It's not the last memory you want people to have of, uh, of a loved one. Well, three days in the grave, none of that was going on with Jesus. I know that might seem like a little bit of conjecture, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's not much of a leap at all. It's not a leap at all. It's not much of a step at all because of this prophecy from David by the Holy Ghost right here. Thou wilt, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. His, I mean, his body had already been mutilated by beating, but it did not break down in its attempt to return to the earth as all flesh does when it dies. And... No need for it to have to anyway. And it wouldn't have been a big deal anyway because God raised up Lazarus. God has raised up others. And he could have done just the same here. Nevertheless, the prophecy was there and God keeps his word. Verse 28. Thou hast made me, thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy, with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Okay, so he finished quoting the Psalms and the writings of David there and begins preaching again. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and in his sepulcher, his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, which David was, said I thought he was a king. He was also a prophet. What made him a prophet? The Spirit of God moving upon him to prophesy. That's what made him a prophet. That's what makes anybody a prophet. So do we have any prophets in this church? So we prophet so-and-so? You know where I'm going with this. If you've ever lived in Southern culture, you've seen more of this than in Northern culture. I'm prophet so-and-so. I walk in the office of a prophet. I'd never heard that phrase until I lived in Florida and a woman told me that I walked in the office of a prophet. I, that was news to me. I had no idea about that. Like, Okay, I, did, I had no idea what to respond to that. What makes a prophet a prophet is the Spirit of God moving upon them to prophesy. It's not just because somebody decides to call themselves a prophet and wander around spewing vaguely spiritual sounding stuff or just quoting scripture and calling it prophecy. It is God that makes any of us anything, amen? So none of us takes it upon ourselves, whatever it may be, even just being believers. Okay, that's all the gift of God. Let's move on. Men and brethren, let me speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and in his, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to his flesh, that means his natural descendants, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. So this is cool. Not only is he, not only is he bringing forth and, and quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Christ, he's even breaking it down and explaining it to us. Okay, so this is mostly a history lesson. He would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this spake before, spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell. So there's support for the understanding that when Jesus died, he didn't just sleep in his body for three days. He descended 
into that realm of judgment. He descended into that realm of torment. I've heard some people question that. Well, did he go into the flames or did he go into Abraham's bosom? And it doesn't get explicit, but it kind of gets close right here. Says hell, doesn't say paradise, doesn't say Abraham's bosom. So that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, verse 32, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, that means Christ was exalted by the right hand of God, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. What was he referencing? He was referencing the miracle that all of these people, as many as were there, beheld with their own eyes and heard with their own ears this miracle of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. For David, verse 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou upon my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The first preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right here in Acts chapter 2. Bam! And it was hitting them like thunderbolts, you could say. I mean, this was something they had never heard the likes of. And... Let's try to picture it in my mind what it must have been like. These massive crowds gathered outside, probably in some hot summer day, because I always picture Israel as a hot, dusty, dirty summer day, because that's all the imagery that I ever got growing up. I don't know. Is it like that? I've been told it kind of has been. Anybody been to Israel? Not, not yet? Not yet. But it would be cool. It would be really cool. Walk some of those streets there in Jerusalem, see some of the things that are at least... Uh, labeled as this is where Jesus did this, this is where Jesus did that. Some of those might be accurate. I think a lot of those are more traditional and just sort of picked a place and called it that. But it would be pretty amazing to see it. But you picture these people all gathered there in Israel listening to Peter preaching by the unction and the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and sharing this. This guy that you guys ignored, he was the one. And don't despair he still is the one in spite of him being delivered up and crucified. And so in verse 37, he picks it up. He says, or the narrative picks it up. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. That's what good preaching ought to do. Amen. It ought to grab something in here and get our attention. Okay. They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's what preaching is supposed to bring about, a point of decision. It's not just someone standing up and giving oratory and reading aloud and, and, and practicing public speaking skills. It's not public speaking. And that's not like Toastmasters and that sort of thing. It's not, it's not all about that at all. It is divinely inspired or should be divinely inspired with a message calling for a point of decision in a person's life. So they said... Men and brethren, what shall we do? They'd received this sermon. They'd received this preaching by the mouth of Peter, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And Peter said unto them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized every one of you 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now that's that whole paragraph there, verse 37 through verse 40. Let's pick this apart for a little bit. They were pricked in the heart at the preaching of Peter. It means that it got their attention. It called them to a point of decision. They had been, they had been presented with the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, as it had moved upon Peter to preach this, had moved upon them to receive it. And so being brought to a point of decision, they asked, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Again, this was the first time the gospel was preached. This was the first time many of them heard that, that they were effectively guilty of delivering up their Messiah to be slain by the Roman executioners up on Golgotha, on Calvary, on the place of the skull. Uh, but although he did say, he did make it clear that that was according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Hopefully that brought a little bit of a measure of comfort to them that, oh, well, if we hadn't have done it, something else would have caused it. Not that it justifies it, but still, that's there to consider. But Peter answers them. He doesn't just blast them with this message and then leave them despairing in their guilt. He tells them exactly what they needed to do, which is exactly the same thing every single one of us needed to do in order to be born again, to be saved. He said, repent and be baptized. Well, we'll break it all down. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now let's take this, to, this answer that he gives to them and let's break it apart into its three component parts, okay? The first thing he said to do is repent. Baptism doesn't save anybody. And let's look at what he did not say. He didn't say, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall be saved. It's not what he said. He put that in there as being related to receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay, He said, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, repentance means to stop, turn away from your sins, leave off the life of sin and that is what the blood of Christ atones for, washes away, takes out of you and takes out of your life, removes from, uh, removes from the ledger in heaven, so to speak. That's a metaphor, but it's very real. We sing about it a lot of times. The old account was settled long ago. That's what he's talking about. Repentance with forgiveness from Christ. That's what brings about salvation. Now he says here, to be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, you know we got to spend a couple minutes on this, don't you? Because there's groups that take this one, they take this one fragment of a verse, and they turn it into an, uh, how do we want to put this? Not an all-consuming. They, they turn this into a dominant doctrine that... We are no longer to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but we have to be baptized in Jesus' name only. Now, if you have any common sense, as well as knowledge of Scripture, you know that that's not what Peter's telling us. He didn't say be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ only. Jesus himself, who frankly trumps Peter, okay, if there's any trumping to be done, not that that's set up that way anyway, our Lord Jesus himself said and commanded his disciples, his apostles, to 
Go ye into all the world. We know this, right? This is the core of the Great Commission. Uh, preaching and teaching men to observe all things, all the things that I've that I've uh, that I've commanded them or commanded you to observe. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Just because Peter singles out one of these three in his general address to this to this gathering, doesn't negate the mention of the Father and of the Son. Because if it weren't for the Father, the Son would have never come. Amen? And if it weren't for either the Father or the Son or the Father and the Son, depending on where you come down in that debate, we would never have received the Holy Ghost. What debate are you talking about? One of those many hair-splitting debates that other groups thousands of years ago uh, got into about does the Holy Ghost proceed from the Father or does, does the Holy Ghost proceed from the Father and the Son? Let me ask you this question. What difference does it make? What counts is that the Holy Spirit came. Thank you, Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit came. So he says, repent. That's the first thing because no one's a candidate for any kind of baptism until they repent. Repent of your sins first. Okay, that's the salvation aspect of it, though. There's, you know, you know what we're saying. Then he mentions to be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's not the baptism that remits those sins. It is the repentance and the application of the blood of Christ that remits those sins. Okay, but the baptism that we the baptism we engage in in water, we dunk a brother like we did in August we dunk a sister or whatever, complete immersion, down into the water you go, come up out of the water you come, welcome to newness of life. Well, they're already in newness of life because it's salvation that brings about newness of life. But water baptism is our public declaration of it. And to use Peter's own language in another place, Peter says, and he clarifies, that baptism in water is the answer of a good conscience towards God doesn't actually put away our sins because that would make salvation a matter of works then, wouldn't it? How do you know you're saved? Brother Bob, Brother Bob would say, I know that I'm saved because the preacher baptized me. Okay, so that's either salvation by the preacher's works, which is a swing and a miss, or that's, baptism, or that's salvation by your works, which is still a swing and a miss. That's that surge protector plugged into itself. Yes. Doesn't work. <laughs> There's no juice in that thing. There's no power. The baptism in water that a Christian undergoes is the answer of a good a good question is the answer of a good conscience towards God, and is the outward showing, the outward demonstration of the inward work that God has already wrought in us when we were first born again, when we were saved. We died to ourselves. We died to sin. I know this is entry level stuff. But it's good to reinforce this. Plus, it was all being shared right here for the first time. We died to ourselves. We died to sin. We died to the old life. Thus, we went down into the water as symbolic of burial as well as death. And then we came up out of that symbolic or metaphoric of our uh, being born again, alive unto God, dead to sin, but now rising up in newness of life in Jesus Christ. The old life is over and the new life has begun. Let's keep it the new life. Amen.
I don't ever want to go back to that sorry old bitter thing that I used to be before Jesus came into my heart. And I trust that none of us really wants to go back to being whatever we were, however monstrous or boring a sinner we might have been. Boring sinners are still sinners, right? We don't want to be any kind of sinner. So, all right, let's move on. Verse 39, he says, For the promise, what was that? This is the promise of the Holy Ghost. Well, no, we need to finish that, that previous sentence. He says, And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, he doesn't say that you'll receive the, the gift of the Holy Ghost the instant you come splashing up out of the water. The baptism of the Holy Ghost and baptism by water are two completely different baptisms. One is water, the other is fire and the Holy Ghost. That's what John, that's what John the Baptist said back in the, in the Gospels, didn't he? He said, I indeed baptize you with water, but there comes one after me, the latchet of whose, of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. It's just that once you have been born again, then a person, a believer, is a, I hate to use the word candidate because it's not like you're trying to join a club. It's not that, it's not like that. But having been born again, the sinful nature of the fallen human heart has been purged. And then we're different. We're new creatures in Christ. And so the sin nature being purged from us, whatever the flesh's inclinations are, that's secondary. The sinful nature being purged from our hearts and minds or from our spirits and souls, you could say, then that is now we have become a, a house fit for habitation by the Holy Spirit of God so that he can come in and live in you. And not only live in you, but everything that comes along with that. Power, comfort, all those things that we preach about as frequently as we do. Power, comfort, discernment that comes along with that. The various and sundry spiritual gifts that, that can be manifested in the lives of believers that God administers them to, and it's his will, amen? So it's not like, uh, hey brother, I've got the gift of healing. It's my gift. God gave it to me. Let me touch your eyeballs so you don't have to wear glasses anymore. And I keep pointing at you because you're the closest one to me here. So I'm sorry, I need to pick on somebody else. It's not like that. He says, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And why is that important? Peter wasn't really the type of preacher to just throw in useless fillers into his preaching. If any of you have ever heard some of that type of preaching, you know, a whole bunch of hand clapping, foot shaking, and a bunch of oohs and ahs and ahs and all that other stuff and, and uh, verbalizations that just kind of stretch things out and then throw a few Christian catchphrases into it and call that preaching. That really wasn't Peter's style. What he, he, what he was saying here was very important for us to understand. He said, the promise is unto you. That's what he was saying to as many as were standing there. He said, this promise, all this that you have seen happen with these brand new or with this, uh, this manifestation of this miracle here, okay? He says, the promise is to you and to your children. So it wasn't just a one-off. It was not. You've got to understand that. Nothing in Scripture says that this miracle was only to happen one time and never occur again. And it has occurred again and again and again and again and again and again and again. It has been documented throughout history. You have to be open to it and will it. And I say it, meaning the experience, not the spirit. The spirit's a person. 
You have to be willing and you have to seek it. It happens as often as a believer willingly receives him. Are we, are we tracking this? So well, it's not for us today. Show me in scripture. Oh, well, the Bible says that whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Yes, it didn't say that they had ceased. There's coming a day when such a blessing and a miracle won't be needed because sin will be over with. And the beast and the devil and the false prophet, we are going to Revelation for a second there, brother. The beast and the devil and the false prophet and, and hell having given up its dead and the sea having given up its dead and final judgment's been rendered and they've all gone into that, into that rolling sea of fire. When all of that's said and done, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Certainly we'll have no need for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We'll be, it'll, it'll be as it was when, well, to an extent, it'll be as it was when Jesus walked the earth. And John's disciples came up to Jesus saying, hey, how come we fast a lot, but your disciples never do? You remember what Jesus' answer was? Why would these guys fast when the, when, when, when the bridegroom is with them? But there shall come a time when the bridegroom shall be taken away. He was foretelling of his own death. His own death and then burial, resurrection, ascension back to the Father. It's like, well, then will they fast, okay? Because they'll be taken away. Well, in the end of all things, when... The new Jerusalem is here. We're living with God for eternity. What need will we have for the Spirit of God to dwell within us? We're going to be on earth with God anyway on a whole different level like we ever used to be. So just something to consider. So while he said that, yes, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, didn't mean that they had already ceased. We are living in the same dispensation of time as these guys were in the book of Acts. Same period. I know that there are, there's no shortage of preachers and pastors and teachers and ministers that will try to dismantle that. But it's here. What do we do with it? We can't ignore it. Some do. Some do. And they'll even admit it. They'll say, oh yeah, all four parts in the book of Acts that even talk about this sort of thing happening. We just don't even look at them. We just kind of ignore them because we don't know what to do with them. Okay. Well, we're not going to be those types of believers. We're not going to be head in the sand, ostrich believers. We're just not going to do it. If there's a promise here that's for us, we want it. Okay. And if you have it, you know. It, okay. So he says here, the promise is unto you. That was to the present generation and to your children. That's future generations and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now we're almost done here for the night. He says in verse 41, and we're going to start the next paragraph. We won't finish it. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. This is the results now of Peter's preaching or of the, actually it's the results of the Holy Spirit. Give all glory to God, okay? Peter was simply the willing instrument as any of us would be, prayerfully as any of us would be. They that gladly received his word were baptized. And say that they all received his word, just as many of them did. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Every time I read that, that blows me away. So why don't we see 3,000 people getting saved at once here? That's a good question. Maybe because so many people have already heard the gospel and they're just pushing it off. Don't really know. Don't really know. There's a lot of different factors in that, I'm sure. One thing for sure is that he was certainly just getting this started. 
And so moving of the Holy Spirit was of a, let's just say a profound strength that day. And these were the results of it. People answered, they repented, they were baptized. And then verse 42, I think is where we'll wrap it up. He says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer, in prayers. Why is that important? They didn't just repent, say a prayer at an altar or not at an altar or wherever they were standing or whatever, and then wander back into their old lives. No, they entered into the new life right here in this paragraph in verse 41. They had heard the gospel. They believed it. They had accepted it. They were changed. And as the very first result of it was, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They had become part of a family they'd never been part of before. And what does good family do? They stick together. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.